You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hi there. Thanks for joining me on this week's episode. As always, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen, and I'm excited to share my conversation with you. This week, I speak with Jessica Douglas, a teaching and learning specialist at Tower Hill School in Delaware. Jess and I discuss the reason why many folks in education are using the term learning difference instead of learning disability and why that language choice is important. Jess talks about her journey as a learner and why she has mixed feelings toward her status and identity as a straight A student in high school. And Jess talks about the importance of restructuring schools and systems for a diverse group of students as it pertains to learning styles and differences, as well as gender, race, and other aspects of identity. If you enjoy the episode, please take a second or two to leave both a rating and a review, and to share the episode with someone who might enjoy it or find it interesting. As always, if you have a recommendation for a guest, maybe a wonderful teacher you know or have had yourself, please get in touch on Facebook or email us at welcometotheteacherslounge at gmail.com. With all that said, please enjoy my conversation with Jess. Hey Jess, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. It's my pleasure. Um, so what I would like to have you do to start is go back to the very first day of school. Um, by that, I mean your first day of full-time teaching, sort of whatever that looks like for you. Um, I'm curious about what you felt on that day, your just general experience, um, what you were excited about, what you were nervous about, how well it went, all of that kind of stuff is is absolutely fair game. Yeah. You know, I knew you were going to ask me this, um, and I spent some time trying to figure out what I was going to tell you um, because my path to teaching was not really standard. Not that I think there's a universal story to this. Um, But the first day that I want to share with you is actually not in a classroom and it's not as like, you know, these are my 12 kids and I'm going to come in and teach or my 24 kids or whatever the case is. Um, I think the first time that I really felt myself to be a teacher is what I want to share with you. Um, And I'm going to take you back to, it was 2010, 2009. Um, And I had just moved to Hong Kong and I did not know what I was going to do. Um, And what I ended up doing was becoming a teacher. (laughs) Um, And one of the first uh, opportunities that uh, was offered to me there was, um, there was a family with a a daughter. She was um, like uh, late elementary school age. Um, had Down syndrome and did not have school placement uh, in Hong Kong. Um, this was an American family, um, and we're sort of did not know where to what to do, where to turn. Um, so, just happened that our uh, social circles crossed paths, and they knew I was looking for something to do, um, and they needed someone to be with their daughter. Um, and you know, we both sort of took a chance to say, like, all right, well. We don't really know what it's going to look like, but let's see. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember coming in uh, the first day and knowing, you know, okay, we're going to work on like classroom kind of behaviors, right? Like how right. to sit at a desk and how to work for extended periods of time. Um, and, you know, 
with the goal really of thinking like, I can't do this forever. She can't do this forever. We have to get her in school. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of the thinking at first. Uh, and I was terrified. Like I had no yeah. idea how to teach that or what to teach or, or how to be a teacher. You know, I had kind of all these anxieties running through yeah. Um, my mind, which I think most of us do our first day of teaching, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, I, don't, I don't get how that works. Um, yeah. And there's so many things that come up like that you can't anticipate right. and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I think why I picked this moment is I think most of us also, that first moment when we kind of become teachers um, is we meet our students. You know, I met this girl and you know, still all of those questions are there. Like, what yeah. does this mean and how do I do it? Um, but suddenly it doesn't matter how it's going to happen. You just know it's yeah. going to. Yeah. Um, and you sort of realize, uh, I think the moment of becoming a teacher for me was when I realized like, I didn't need the answers. Like that wasn't what it was. I didn't need to know how to teach or what to teach or all yeah. of that. I needed to know my students and I needed to know this, um, this child. Yeah. So we worked together for a year um, she and I, and did things which apparently, you know, she wasn't, um, expected to be able to do. Right. M- mainly because I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't yeah, know what, right, what right. she could or, or wasn't, you know, expected, um, yeah. to handle. Um, but, you know, years after when I still wasn't sure that being a teacher was actually what I wanted to do, uh, I sort of kept coming back to her into those moments of, um, of really that like vulnerability of being a teacher and that um, the the joy that came from almost the helplessness of that and like just sort of trusting yeah. my career and my um, my every day to yeah. the students. So yeah, yeah, sort of like giving up like that need to be in control yes. or complete control or or to have you know fully thought out, fully fleshed out expectations. Right. Uh, it can be really difficult. I mean, like, I still struggle with that. And I always tell people that, like, that I am blessed to be, like, one of the most type B <laughs> teachers you will ever meet in your life. That's just how I've always been or, like, I think how I've been for or really ever right. since I developed a personality. And, you know, it, it really helps because you do feel that need to be in control and to have your whatever your lesson planned out or your mm-hmm. week planned out or your semester or year planned out. But you can only do that to a certain degree. And you have to have that flexibility, which I think in a lot of ways is what sort of saved me in my first few years of teaching. Um, yeah. And I also I found myself at a place right now where I kind of have to veer a little more towards being kind of type A. Um, but I, I can imagine for people who just fought, have always found themselves more on like the type A side of things, like it's really hard to give up that sense of, of control. And I've seen people really struggle to do that. Yeah, it's definitely one of the, you know, I am definitely more on the type A um, spectrum, but it's, it's one of the hardest parts of the job. Um, but I also think, you know, there's this like assumption maybe that letting go of control means like, oh, I won't get to the end of my lesson or I won't right, do as right. much as I thought. But as many times as it's been that for me, it's been the opposite where I expect to get this far and like, no, we can do so much more. They can yeah. handle so much more. Um, and so it goes both ways with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure starting off like with that as like kind of like your first day that you would like the, the experience you would identify as like your first day of teaching probably like set this expectation for yourself that like this is what this is going to look like. Like I'm not yeah. always going to have a clear expectation or have like these clear goals set up because sometimes I'm going to be stepping into situations where I don't know as much as I would like to about the 
child I'm working with or the children I'm working with or even the subject that I'm working with. Right. Um, what brought you to Hong Kong? Um, well, I was working in advertising, actually, uh, in New York and thinking that I was, you know, going to ha- have this career of, um, of like social media marketing and that like I was very interested in how we communicated online. And at some point it started sort of falling apart for me when I realized that um, no one cared about like the implications <laughs> of how we right. communicated. It was, you know, it was, it was a business. It was um, selling yeah. products and uh, it sort of fell apart for me then. Um, and so Hong Kong was actually just a, it was an opportunity and it was a way out of, um, it was just, just a do-over. Like, I didn't like the career where I was. I thought I'd try something else. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I guess that probably veers into my, my next question, which is, you know, what was the moment when you realized that you wanted to be a teacher or the series of moments that led you into um, this this career? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been working to try to create a really linear story for, like, my becoming an educator Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not linear. Um, and this is a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of my like type A. I'd love it to be sure. um, super, super organized. And it's not. Um, I mean, I think when I was a kid, my dad was a teacher and, um, it was sort of like one of the first things I imagined myself as being. Yeah. Um, and then I got older and became kind of more interested in like, maybe I'd like to be a writer. Maybe I want to you know, get a PhD. I still was interested in in the way that people interacted and um, sort of became. I was interested in the becoming of people. Yeah. And it took me a while to figure out that I was not just interested in the becoming of people. It was that I wanted to have a hand in that. Um, and it came a lot through these experiences, like the one that I mentioned was my first time feeling like I was a teacher. Um, but also moments of like teaching, um, like being a TA in college and working, you know, with kids in, in non-academic realms, um, as faculty advisors, um, and, and sort of like putting together that it wasn't that I just wanted to like think about this stuff. It was that I, you know, actually thought I might have a hand in helping kids become adults. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, it sounds like that impulse of yours and that instinct toward like becoming of people and mm-hmm. like the larger sort of like implications of the way that people think and the way that people act when people learn it sounds like that had a lot to do with like what you felt as the shortcomings of your time spent in <laughs> you know media and, and all that kind of stuff because right. you, like you said you they people weren't thinking about the, the implications of why people behave the way they do online it was just kind of like well we just want to know how people behave so we can cater right. toward those needs Whereas, like, I'm sure you're going crazy, like, but we have all this information, like, what, what are we going to do with it? Right. Apart from just, like, you know, figure out how to get more likes on Facebook or whatever it is. That's, that's, like, that's like, a really reductive way of talking about no, your past it's, career. It's, and it's I don't mean that's inaccurate. <laughs> it's not inaccurate. Right, right. Um, yeah, but then going from that to, like, okay, well, I'll get a PhD and I'll write about this in a library. Um, that didn't, it didn't work for me after this experience um, in Hong Kong. Like, I, it was almost like I was haunted by this feeling of, like, it, this is an active process. It's not a, it's not a reflective one. Right. Right. So after that, that moment in Hong Kong, after that experience in Hong Kong, was, was that kind of what opened it up for you and made you say like, this is what I want to to do for, you know, the foreseeable future? 
I would love to tell you yes, and then I immediately got my first, you know, classroom teaching job, but that is not exactly. Gotcha. <laughs> um, no, I spent some time uh, working towards you know, higher education. Um, mm. Like I really thought I was going to, you know, write a PhD and just like sit and, and think about it um, for the rest of my life. Um, that didn't happen that way. Uh, again, m- mainly because of these experiences and, and with these students that just kind of kept calling to me. Um, about needing to actually be with the, the people that I was interested in. Um, so that led me actually to a social work degree. Mm. Um, I abandoned the PhD work and, and, and sought out the more kind of hands-on degree for social gotcha. work. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was great for a little bit. I was working in schools with that and really spending time with kids, um, with kids with learning differences, Um, trying to help them navigate systems that were sort of otherwise failing them. Um, And I'm, you know, my current work is not far off from that. It's uh, similarly, I'm kind of helping people become, you know, their fullest selves in systems that aren't always designed for that. Yeah, that makes sense. Your current, your current title is a learning specialist, correct? Yes. Yes. But I know that you've kind of like, You've held like similar positions that have like different titles. Yes, um, currently learning specialist. Yes. Gotcha. Um, because I know it's probably going to come up a couple different times. I'm curious in this this phrasing of learning differences versus um, disabilities, which is yeah. the, I think the term that most people are probably familiar with. Um, it's something that I've kind of become used to just like in, in working at, at Pennington. Um, but it's something that was new to me. So I'm kind of curious if you could like provide like a little bit of like an explanation as to like that term, how it is different from learning disabilities and sort of why that is a term that you use and many other people are, are starting to use. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I have probably a shorter answer and then I have like a, you know, a book about this that I could, <laughs> right. <laughs> I could write someday. Um, the, the, the first thing is that, um, anytime we use, you know, the word disability, um, even though it's not saying inability, uh, many of us tend to imagine that it's an inability, right? Yeah. Um, especially when physical disabilities are often aligned, right? Like a, a disability is blindness. They cannot see, right? Um, and so when we talk about learning disabilities, we don't, uh, we get nervous, you know, about people assuming like that you can't learn them, that it's an inability yeah. to learn, which is not the case. Um. I'm going to make one more point about why learning dis, uh, differences um, in a minute, but just a, one thing that is, I think, beneficial of continuing keeping the language disability um, mm-hmm. is that, you know, these are challenges, right? It is a learning difference, but in the structure that we have, it's challenging, right? So um, it, it's important to remember, I think, that these kids... Uh, with their various different learning differences are still faced with, you know, it's going to take me eight hours longer, or I have to find that book on audio, or I need to get copies of those notes ahead of time. Um, And, and so it's not as if, you know, different, like I'm wearing a red shirt, you're wearing a blue shirt. Um, There, there is weight that comes with it. Um, So I'm actually not, I'm not sold on abandoning the phrase learning disability, but I do think that we need to understand, um, and this is the second point about it, that, you know, really we have, we have school set up such that it prioritizes certain, um, neurological, uh, 
frameworks, right? We, we prioritize certain kinds of learning and certain ways yeah. of, um, of taking in and, and, and giving back information. Um, and so the kids, you know, who we label as these are learning disabled, their brains don't work in that way. <laughs> Um, right, right. But we could imagine a a learning situation. We could imagine a school um, that prioritizes different kinds of of learning. Um, in which case, those kids would not be disabled, and maybe I would. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it does send a different message to to the kids who have those learning differences because it sends that message of like, it's not that I can't learn, or it's not that I don't learn in like the normal way. I just like learn in a different way than yeah. other people do. Um, so it kind of like matches like what their reality is. And it also just kind of like sends a, a message to them that they can that they can do it. They just might need to do it a little differently. Right. And I think putting the responsibility back on the system is important. Mm-hmm. Right. Anytime we're dealing with um, with individuals who are struggling. Right. And it is a struggle to have a learning difference. Um we need to put blame where it is. It's not on the the student with dyslexia, right? That yeah. that we need to read all day long. Um, it's not their fault, um, and it doesn't have like the system did not have to be built in these ways, right? And so um, I think it's it's freeing um, for the individual. I think it's important for teachers, right, who are part of this system of you know this power system to know that like it was a decision at some point to be like this. Yeah, that makes sense. We'll definitely get back to this topic um, in a little bit. I do have a couple follow-up questions about that. But um, I'm curious to kind of shift gears a little bit um, about what you were like as uh, as a student, as a learner. Um, I'm curious about um, what your experience was like as a student, kind of thinking about starting wherever it makes sense for you to think about your trajectory as a learner. Um, and I'm also curious about like what impact that has had on your approach as an educator and sort of your journey um, as as a teacher. Yeah, you know, <laughs> part of me wishes that you didn't ask this question, though I know why you have to, you know. And this is, <laughs> um, right. <laughs> some of me, and this probably isn't very healthy, but I'm a little like ashamed of the the student that I was. Okay. Um, and when I tell you why, like this may sound funny, but um, I was definitely like straight A, crossed all my T's. Like if I got a 93 on something, I wanted to know why. Um, yeah. Mostly. Um, and there were hiccups in there, which which I think, you know, are probably the, the windows that made me um, who I am now. But um, but I was definitely that kind of kid. Right. This the language of school was my language. I think I mentioned yeah. that my dad was an educator. Um, so I knew like I knew all the rules. I knew how to talk to teachers. I knew how to like format my homework. I knew how to ask for help. Um, yeah. I had all of the resources that I needed. Um, and so I was that kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm very I'm very familiar with that kid. I was I was in a lot of ways as well, for sure. You know, and it's funny to be like ashamed of that. It's funny to be ashamed of that, but I am a little bit because, um, because I was, I wasn't actually, you know, I don't mean to say that I never learned anything in high school, sure. um, because that's not true, but I didn't really learn how to learn in high school. That did not happen. Um, mm-hmm. I learned how to be compliant in high school and I learned yeah. very well how to memorize, you know, for my AP bio test. <laughs> I was very yeah. good at memorizing, um, the moments in high school when I actually needed to like 
learn something and challenge myself, uh, I didn't handle them particularly well. Um, like they were kind of horrifying for me. Uh, now what, what do you mean by like didn't handle them particularly well? Well, I lasted one week in AP physics before I dropped the class entirely. I've still gotcha. not taken physics. <laughs> right. And I never will. Um, right. But if I had been a different kind of student and if I had learned how to learn or if I had had a different narrative about what it means to be a student, I might have yeah. um, or had allowed the possibility that I might not get an A in something, right? If any of that had yeah. been true, I might have stuck with that and I might have learned not only some physics, which, you know, I think maybe that's not important in my life right now, but I would have, right. you know, learned, you know, at, at 17 instead of much later in life that um, things that are hard are worth working through and that we can learn, yeah. you know, about who we are that way. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I identify that with in a lot, like in a lot of ways. Like I look back on so many educational opportunities that I, that I had and was presented with and really feel like I squandered them because I was really uncomfortable mm -hmm. with like being in that place of uncertainty and admitting that uncertainty and working through that uncertainty, you know, in the way that I expect my students to, and I really encourage yeah. them to and, and act like it's not that difficult. But then I have to remember that like, if I were, you know, I've been in classes where I was told that by teachers and told like that it was okay that I didn't understand it. And, you know, that I should just like, you know, approach it a little bit differently. I just, I did not, was not able to internalize that yeah. you know, either because in a lot of ways, I, I, like you, was very privileged with just like intuitively being able to be good at school and do school well. Yeah. Like it all just made sense to me, um, which I think allows you to succeed through like the overwhelming majority of your educational experiences and in high school at least. Right. But the times when you are presented with those situations, we totally just fold. Yeah. Um, and just don't work through them, actually. <laughs> right. You know, and then you feel a little bit like a hypocrite later on. Yeah. Um, saying, like, well, can't you just try harder? <laughs> like, yeah, right, 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 right. Can you just, like, work with it a little bit? Um, when right, or be okay. I, yeah, um, be okay with, like, not being good at this on the yeah, first try. Yeah, it's okay if you have to try more than one time. Um, meanwhile, yeah. at 17, I never did. I never tried yeah. more than one time. So, so when did that change for you? Um, like, was college a particularly formative experience and like your journey as a, as a learner and as a student? Yes. Um, yes. So I came into college kind of assuming that it would be the same, right? Like I'd always mm -hmm. done well. I would, I would just continue to do well. Um, right. and I, got placed into uh, a chemistry class that, um, you know, was fine for about three days and then <laughs> was like most certainly not fine. <laughs> right. And not so like fine right after the, the syllabus. <laughs> yes. <So> it's like, <laughs> yeah. Have you, do you know what the periodic table is? And then like beyond that, I was not, I was in trouble. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, now, differently than, you know, AP physics in high school, I did stick with it. Um, so that was like, I think already indication that maybe I'd grown a bit. Um, yeah. but I, you know, it was, I, I've never felt so far off from understanding as I did in that class. It was like, I would go to the professor and not even know the question to ask. I was, I was so yeah. lost. Um, 
and he, you know, for all his, his attempts to, to help sort of couldn't even like, couldn't reach far enough down to, to where I was. Right. Um, so right. I, I sort of made it through that class thanks to, um, you know, a very helpful lab tech who would stay with me for like ridiculous numbers of hours to like redo the lab millions of times till I could figure it out. Um, and like working on homework sets with other people. Otherwise I would have, I'm sure would have failed the class. You know, I made it through fine, fine. Like it, you know, it counted for credit. That's about all I can say for it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I mean that experience too of, of feeling like I didn't even know how to ask for help. I think, um, having not been that kid in high school, like that was really important for me to, to figure out. And as a teacher now, you know, trying to recognize those moments when like, does this kid even know (laughs) what they don't, what they don't know right Right, now. Right, right. So. I know that you, like me, kind of like found yourself in a college that could in some ways like be identified sort of as like a a competitive college or like a sort of like elite college in in a lot of ways. Was that like a healthy like environment for you like as like someone who was like a really good student and found yourself probably around like a lot of other people who are really good students um I think for a lot of people like it can either kind of like it kind of like embolden you as a learner but also like it can kind of make you aware of just like the I don't know the deficiencies and being in that kind of environment where like everyone is just like so good at school and is so like driven <laughs> academically and and there is such a focus on academics i mean i don't know the particularities of your college exactly but i know that that is you know yeah. the, largely the structure that we're working with here yeah i mean actually it was pretty good for me um because i don't i don't want to say i skated through high school because it's not accurate i did work mm-hmm. um sure but i i wasn't challenged in many places in high school um at least not the way that I was in college. And I think it was just, um, it was great for me to be in an environment where it was like, well, but that's still not an A, right? Like you put in everything that you had and it still isn't, um, that was, that was good for me to, to learn. And also, um, like, I don't know that I would have pushed myself to sort of the, the places that I got to. Um, I will say though, having gone abroad junior year, um, and coming back, sort of looking around and feeling like, don't you guys know there's like a world out there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, so right, there, right. <laughs> but it, that was the right time, you know? That was the yeah. end of college, and that was the right time for that. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I identify with that in a lot of ways, because I, it's funny, because I always tell people, like, I went to, like, I, I went to Skidmore, and I, I love Skidmore, and I love my time there, but it was not my top choice by any stretch of the imagination, and I applied to a ton of schools, and I didn't get into like the schools I wanted to go to more. Um, and like, I definitely found myself like struggling in some classes at, at Skidmore and definitely like met my match in a lot of ways. And I found myself sort of thinking about like, oh, like what would it have been like if I had gone to one of those much more competitive, like academically challenging schools? And it just kind of made me like, it has maybe understood like one, that there's more important things than grades and GPAs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And two, that like, you end up in the situation that you're meant to end up in. And like, ultimately, like, though you may have been convinced that you need to end up in this, whatever, this school or at this job or in this like career, um, if it doesn't end up working out, even though you tried your hardest, like, that's going to be okay. And in some cases, like better off, even though you were so convinced that like, that's what you 
needed to do and that's where you needed to be. Yeah, I think that kind of comes back to where we'd started with like letting go of expectations. I think, yeah. um, you know, yeah, it's great as a teacher to let go of expectations, but like as a person also, like I think you find yourself like where you're meant to be. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a good message to be able to like communicate to your students um, and to be able to say like, I know what you're talking about. I have felt that, but like what has made my life, you know, immensely better is the fact that, um, that I have had those expectations totally upended and I've ended up like in places that I didn't even think, although I don't know how effective or how like convincing you are in that moment because, <laughs> you know, you're an adult and like you're in a different world. And, like you have right. those experiences that they don't have and you shouldn't expect them to have. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to transition a little bit to a question regarding how we as educators or we as the education system fail our students and what it looks like when we fail our students. Um, like I said, sort of broadly speaking, but also like as individual teachers in individual classrooms. We've talked about this a little bit, obviously, and talking about learning differences and the way the system doesn't always work so well for certain mm-hmm. students. But I'm curious about just other thoughts you might have about what it looks like when we're not serving our students as, as well as we should be. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of it comes back to the systemic issues for me that, you know, this is my background in social work, right? Is that, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of it is that we, not so much that we have a system, right? Like we, we are going to have a system. <laughs> and I don't mean to say that the way that we've set up high school is entirely flawed or anything like that mm-hmm. either. Um, but we fail our students when we fail to recognize that we are part of a system and that it is, not the only way things could be. Um, yeah. And so I think that's one of the main, the main places, uh, you know, that, that we fail them. Um, I think also, you know, and this is, maybe I can say this because I'm not in the classroom right now, but uh, I think one place that, that, you know, and when I was in the classroom that I would fail my students um, is, thinking of myself as a teacher, right? Instead of thinking of my students as learners, right? Mm. Um, and both yeah. things can happen at the same time. But what I mean by this um, really is that, you know, if if I'm focused on like me as a teacher, this is a lot of the like, I'm coming in with my syllabus and this is what yeah. they will learn and this is the content, right? Um, rather than thinking about like, what is, you know, their brains are developing and what is happening in there. Um, and really kind of letting go of the content a little bit. And again, this, I'm not in the classroom, so I can say, you know, like, Oh, forget about teaching limits and calculus. Um, Right. (laughs) Right. Maybe it's not exact, you know, maybe that's too far, but if we can like sort of set that as like an imaginary space where the content is like really irrelevant to what's actually happening, which is that, these children are learning to be critical thinkers and are learning to be like complete humans. Um, and they're learning, you know, how to, how to learn and they can pick their content later. Well, and it actually, it brings up a conversation or a, a question that I think would actually be helpful for both for me and for, um, for our listeners in terms of like, what, what does your job like look like, <laughs> like as a learning specialist, like what, what does that look like? Cause I know it can, it can look a lot of different ways and, um, you know, I know yeah. it might have some carryover with like teaching, like being like a special education teacher and all that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm curious about like what that actually looks like on a somewhat daily basis. 
Sure. Um, and I can tell you, this is another one of those like expectations out the window, sure. um, because in my current position, we, you know, we're kind of reimagining what this could be um, regularly, um, which is a really awesome place to be as a, as a teacher and as a learner. Um, but right now, my regular day to day life is that kids who, you know, somehow are not speaking the language of school by whatever means that is, right? If that's a learning uh, difference, disability, right? If that is a, a health issue, like a, an auditory issue, like they can't hear literally the teacher, right? Yeah. Um, or if it's just a an anxiety issue, right? Like those kids who get A's all the time and suddenly they're in that chemistry class. Right, right. Um, so working one-on-one uh, -on -one with those kids as much as possible, um, and sometimes that means small groups, but... Um, really getting as much individualized uh, attention on these kids and helping them uh, learn to master strategies for learning. Um, and so that can mean a lot of different things. That can mean like, here's how to access an audiobook, or um, here's how to write out a graphic organizer with your ideas, um, or here's how to set up a microphone in your classroom, mm -hmm. uh, and here's how to, you know, be mindful and bring down your anxiety, right? It takes different shapes with all different students. Yeah. Um, and again, it's really thinking about how their brains are working and what kind of, what neurological pathways might not be functioning as, as expected and kind of bridging gaps um, there. Um, so that's one part. And then the other part in my current job, which is... Um, which is really exciting is helping teachers kind of figure out how to bring these strategies into their classrooms, right? Yeah. And so how to really differentiate learning as much as possible, especially as the kinds um, <clears throat> the kinds of students are changing and we're seeing like more and more neural diversity of our students, you know, teachers, uh, new or old teachers, both who like learned, a lot of us became teachers because we were good at school. Yeah, right? And right. so um, really helping to provide some scaffolding for um, for other uh, different ways of learning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it that brings up a question of that I encounter sometimes when I talk about even just like the small thing of like talking about, you know, like I, I will mention the fact that like at Pennington, like that I work with a lot of students with learning differences and people will kind of like kind of like tilt their heads and be like well, what do you mean by that and i'll say like oh yeah like learning differences like we use that term instead of disabilities because of like all, all the connotations that it carries and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. and that always brings up a question that i think ties into the work that you do as a learning specialist of like essentially people will ask like well are you really like preparing them for like the real world like isn't that in some way sort of like not not coddling them but isn't it sort of like you know and when they get to the real world like they're going to be certain like expectations and i say real world like you know heavy heavy <laughs> use of quotation marks there but yeah. I, I would imagine that must be some sort of question that you must encounter every now and then of like how do you balance like meeting them where they are but also communicating that they might find themselves in situations where people aren't going to be willing to meet them where they are that instinct isn't going to be there like what what is your answer to that question if you ever encounter it um so i haven't I haven't heard exactly, well, I haven't heard exactly that question. Um, a lot of the work, though, of, of working with kids with learning differences is helping them develop self-advocacy, mm, right? Because yeah. they're not always going to have a learning specialist or a fantastic English teacher who's going to kind of be by their side. Sure. Um, but they can always, you know, once they've learned to say, my brain doesn't process 
information visually like that. I really am going to need an audio tape of your class mm, right. Right, um, in college or in a meeting, um, right? Like we all actually use these kind of like learning scaffolds as adults in the right. real world, you know? Um, right. We have secretaries and we record on our laptops and we um, take pictures of things and we, um, you know, we have one person take notes from a meeting, right? And send them out. Um, so we actually use these, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the key is definitely learning how to, um, just sort of speak up about what is needed, um, and get that. Um, and then I think if I can add to this, like yeah. a related question that does come up a lot, um, especially, you know, learning differences in like sort of, uh, college prep schools, right. Where like people sort of look at that as like that, that seems incongruous, right? Right, right. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, but one thing that, that, you know, is a question of like, what's the difference between accommodating and modifying, right? right? Like right, right. where's the difference there? And then, yes, like if we're modifying curriculum, how are we preparing these kids in the same way? Yeah. Um, you know, and I think this kind of goes back to like where I think we might be failing students, right? Yeah. Where it's like, is it is it the content though? Like, does it does it matter if they know the things that Google can tell them, or yeah. does it matter if they can process the things that Google can tell them? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that the the latter is much more interesting and much more important. Yeah. Um, and so if we are sort of accommodating to you know bring the Google list, we can't. We're not accommodating for the complex. Uh, functions of making connections between that information and making sense of it. So yeah, absolutely. And and when it comes to like modifying versus accommodating, like maybe maybe yeah maybe like I am expected to like modify some aspect of my curriculum or my lesson or something like that. But I'm I'm doing it so I can accommodate my students and create an environment in which they are actually learning and feel like they have the ability to learn. Um, to the point where maybe I have to modify less later on down the road. But even like that really worrying about that distinction, um, which I think for a lot of educators, like those of us who have always had those self-advocacy skills just hardwired into us or we're really good at right. school, like sometimes it can be really hard to like, you know, to to throw off like the, the feeling that like, oh, I'm modifying my lesson, you know, but it, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't, it shouldn't matter that much. I mean, you want to be fair, obviously. You want to make sure that you're also like not not bending over backwards like too much and right and and giving students that ability to then you know giving them some sense of agency but i think that many of us and i include myself in this absolutely just worry too much about i don't know maybe it's like a pride thing as well of like saying like oh like are you saying like that i'm not doing enough and i have to like change the way that i teach or or something like that i feel like that's the way that i you know my mind that's like the extreme place that my mind can go sometimes when i'm no and i'm so glad you said that actually because um I, it has come to my attention that, um, that I may need to, you know, think a little bit (laughs) about how I, uh, how I present sometimes these ideas, Mm -hmm. um, because I don't think, you know, I don't think that, that almost all or all of the teachers that I interact with and have in previous schools are like somehow deficient or not getting it. Um, I, I don't, (laughs) um, and I think, I'm sort of like, oh, I assume that you know that I think that, you know. Yeah, um, right. Um, no. <laughs> I think uh, I think most teachers in this country, most teachers, you know, really, like, come to this work because they're called to make a difference for kids. And yeah. most teachers um, 
have instincts that are to meet kids where they are and like are already doing all of these things sort of like even if they don't realize it yeah and you know the the suggestions that kind of reach more kids or or think about lesson plans and things like that are really just like like in a way giving you the same kind of scaffold right that we give kids like in, in this position um and it's like this is some language around stuff that you're already doing. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yes, it should be framed that way. I should, I should yeah. say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, but you're, I mean, you're right. I mean, because in a lot of ways, like what it means to reframe things for our students is to say like, hey, you're already doing something that's kind of similar to this. So like yeah. do that, but redirect it in this direction and harness that in this direction. And that's probably a helpful way to also think of it in terms of like, you know, what the way that we work with with educators. And sometimes that's what's right. been most helpful with me when I like try and think about how I work with students with learning differences about saying like, oh, I've already kind of done this before. So now I just have to like, you know, like I said, harness that to meet, th- to meet this particular need. Right. Um, it's really simple at the end of the day. No, it's it's not. It's actually very, <laughs> it's very challenging for everyone involved, but it's worth it. Um Another question I have for you is I know you, you and this I think ties into this question of ways in which students can feel um, failed or, or not always like their needs are being met. But I know that you do a lot of work with initiatives surrounding inclusion and, and diversity. Um, I worked with you a little bit um, on with some work that we did here here at Pennington. Um, but I know that's just something that you're really passionate about. So I'm curious just like about like what that experience has been like for you and sort of how you came into that um, as, as a focus for the work that you do both in and out of the classrooms around your, you know, whatever schools you've, you've been in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I think like neurodiversity and other kinds of diversity are like belong in the same conversation, right? So I think that I am interested in diversity while working with kids who are learning different is, is like makes some sense yeah. that way. Um, you know, and I thinking about systems and thinking about, who's known the language of school and who, who can, who has the resources to, to figure it out, especially college prep schools, right. Have prioritized like being white and often, often male though. That's like less, less clear in high school. I think, um, like who you would imagine like Holden Caulfield to be. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Um, you know, I remember loving Dead Poet Society as a kid. Yeah. Right. And then sort of like as I got older, I was like, wait, that, <laughs> that story's actually like really messed up. Yeah. Like, on a lot um, of different levels. <laughs> like a lot of levels. Um, but, you know, that's really that's like who school was it, it was built for. Right. Like and those are the brains and those are the bodies that school was designed for. Um, and so part of. You know, when I when I worked as a social worker, I worked in schools um, that were not populated by those kids, by by, um, Holden Caulfield, (laughs) by rich white kids at all. Right. Um, And yet the school was still designed for the rich white male. Um, And so I think part of like, you know, that was an experience that I kind of lived through was seeing how how jarring the the system does not fit those kids in yeah. that situation. Um, I think that makes it a little you know clearer to me than in schools where the match is a little closer. Um, yeah. I can sort of you know see through it because of maybe this this experience before. Um, but you know I, I I've seen brilliant 
students and amazing individuals feel completely um, undervalued or, you know, invisible um, in their in the places where they spend the majority of their day. Um, yeah. And that, you know, as a, as a human being, I can't, I can't sit with that. Yeah. You know, so that's really, it, to me, like, that's what diversity means, right? Is like, we've decided to open up this school, these schools that we've designed for white boys um, and rich white boys even, right? Yeah. And, and we've decided to invite others into it. Um, but haven't made the effort to change the uh, the rules or the expectations or yeah. um, the the structures around that, um, and so the work needs to be both to support the the students who are in this place that it's not designed for them, and also really to critically um, consider what structures we have and who they're for. Yeah, and yeah, who they're not. Right, right. Yeah, and and meeting those kids who, like you said, like just don't have the luxury of always feeling safe in their school the majority of the time yeah. even um, I'm also I, I I'm curious about what that experience has been like for you to think about these issues of of inclusion and diversity and what it means to be like an ally um, even for things that might not directly impact like your everyday existence right like I know obviously yeah. Like you do work with gender and like as a woman, like you have a lot of insight to that. But then I also imagine that you do a lot of work like with like race and, and sexuality and like as like a white, like straight woman, like what has that, how, you know, how, how do you communicate like that you are, you know, an ally and you are creating these spaces while also like navigating it with some level of, of privilege. It's something that I think about a, a ton and I wrestle with and I don't know the best way to balance all of those things but I'm curious about like what your experience has been like in that and what what you feel allows you to be able to like create those spaces and be like an effective ally yeah um you know and I think that's a really it's a good question and it's it's a hard thing to deal with um as a you know uh, as an as a non-minority right in these situations um and as sort of an outsider um you know I think I'm guided in these moments and really always by, um, by listening. Right. And so I, I don't enter diversity conversations, um, with, uh, with a plan to speak for someone else or tell someone else's story unless I've been asked to share a story. Right. But, um, yeah, but I think for me, the key of doing the work has been like, I am curious and I want to know your, you know, I want to know everyone's experience, right? I, yeah. I would like to hear it um, while also, um, you know, from my position of privilege, I can call out the system and I can, you know, sort of hack at the system in a way that someone who is marginalized by it cannot. Um, and so I think like, the work is really twofold in that way, right? Like, yeah. in one sense, being a vessel, and in another, being a hammer. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, and it goes back to like what you, the work that you do as a learning specialist, and even the work that you had to do, like with that child in in Hong Kong, right? Of of maybe not necessarily being t able to identify with all aspects of what your students or what the learners that you're you know you're charged with, um, what they're going through but you're able to listen and figure out what their needs are and figure out how you can help them because it's probably very interesting. I mean, you've, you've tapped into this a little bit, but being like a learning specialist when learning 
has always come really easily to you, right? Like, or at least right. in high school, like you did very well and, you know, didn't didn't have these same sort of learning differences that, that some of your students might have. So it goes hand in hand with the work that you're doing anyway. So it's just a matter of like, kind of like we were talking about earlier, like harnessing it toward issues of race yeah. or gender or sexuality as well. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, similarly also, um, and maybe this, this helps anyone else who's, you know, sort of um, majority group or neurotypical or whatever, you know, version of that, um, who's, who's doing this work of, of supporting um, those who are marginalized. Um, you know, it's like, it's hard enough <laughs> to be in these systems and to be, you know, part of a marginalized group. It, it's like, that is enough emotional work um, and then to sort of expect, especially when this is often students, right? Like our, we often have like more diversity in our student body than our faculty, yeah. um, to expect that, that those kids would like also then be in charge of like, you know, um, helping the adults in their community, like get woke. Like that's not fair. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is like far too much to ask. Um, so like we do need to support them and like we do need to do some of the heavy hitting work, um, including making sure their voices are heard. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, um, so we're moving into the final stages here. So um, okay. my next question is um, just regarding whether or not you have any sort of like large takeaways from your time as an educator or some like piece of of advice or something that you found yourself reminding yourself either lately or or throughout your time as an educator um maybe also thinking about it in terms of something that you might communicate with someone who is a new teacher or is just looking for like that large again takeaway that that is kind of like a a game changer or might just help you, you know, be a, a better teacher and, and do it more effectively. So I'm curious about what whatever comes to mind for you um, with that question, that there might be a lot. There's a lot, but I'm going to um, I'm going to rely on one of my previous um, students because I'd, I'd like I'd like her voice to, to shine in this. Um, she said, um, all my life, I've struggled with speaking up because I never thought my answers were right. Um, and to me, that's been really profound to hear yeah. as a teacher um, for a lot of reasons that, you know, we're focused so often on like, what's the right answer? Yeah. Um, and that the damage of that goes beyond, you know, kids not getting A's, right? The damage yeah. of that goes so far as to prevent students from feeling like they have a voice. Um, and all of us as teachers, I think, want the opposite. We want all of our students to sing and to speak and to be heard. Right. That's beautiful. I love that. And it's obviously it, it, it comes or that that impulse and that idea comes directly from a student. So it's definitely it pertains both to teachers and clearly to our students as well, which I feel like yeah. the best pieces of advice and those large takeaways can be things that apply to, you know, to teachers and, and students as well. That's great. Okay, so as we move into the very final stage here, um, I have a, a challenge for you. <laughs> um, what I would like you to do uh, is, to the best of your ability, capture your essence as an educator or potentially thinking about it as, as pitching yourself as an educator in 30 seconds. Okay? Okay. So I'm going to throw 30 seconds on the <laughs> clock, and just whatever comes to mind, I will let you know when you have 10 seconds left. Um 
any any questions about this any any worries or or anything like that that you feel I will tell you it is not in my learning profile to love timed okay. activities but I'll that's do my best well that's that is all we're, we're looking for um yes <laughs> this is a good exercise in admitting your uncertainties and working through them as, as we've been talking about so we're putting our our money where our, where our mouths are so perfect okay so I'm going to go ahead and count you in in three two one go Okay, so thank you for the timer. Uh, I think I'd like to quote uh, Lao Tzu, who's a Chinese philosopher. He says, silence is the source of great strength. Um, And I really rely on this as a person, but as an educator especially. um, I would love for all of my students to learn like the one thing, to listen to each other, to listen to themselves. Um, But then also as an educator, I need to listen to what their learning is telling me. Perfect. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For someone who is so allergic to timed uh, activities, I, I think that you performed. <laughs> I mean, I had another two minutes well. to, you know, to share. Sure, <laughs> sure. All right, great. So what we're going to do now is move on to the next round, um, which mm-hmm. requires you to just do exactly what we just did. Um, pitch yourself as an educator, capture your essence as a, as a teacher uh, to the best of your ability, but this time in 10 seconds. Okay. okay. So 10 seconds on the clock. I will throw it on the screen as well. Um, go ahead in three, two, one, go. So helping our future leaders, our students to listen, I think will open uh, the future to a diversity of voices and stories and knowing. And I barely made it. <laughs> <laughs> but you made it and that's what matters. Wonderful. Um, so now the final thing I'd like you to do is just capture your essence as an educator to the best of your ability using just one word. learner that's awesome that's perfect (laughs) that's perfect wonderful well thank you so much jess i really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me um about such a wide range of of issues but i also appreciate the fact that it all really does come back to um just sort of like what we initially talked about and, and what your word captures of just what it means to to be a learner and to view education and the different opportunities that you are presented with as a teacher as as opportunities for you to also strengthen yourself as a as a learner and we've worked together in a couple different ways in our time at pennington and i always loved working with you and found you to be uh, a very refreshing dose of like reality in the sense of like you know exactly what your kids need and you know what is going <laughs> on with them which is really great. And it just makes it that much more like applicable and makes it that much easier to do this crazy, difficult thing that we are, are, are charged with doing. So I appreciate all of that. Well, absolutely. Likewise, in terms of loving working with you in every, every capacity we did, um, you know, I think you really, uh, you really support kids and you really, um, you really want to, you know, keep learning yourself. And I think it just shows in all your work. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks again, Jess. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you to Jess for speaking with me and for being so generous and thoughtful during our conversation. Once again, if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating and review and tell a friend about Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay. Our associate producer is Emily Moeller. Our cover art is by Katie Cooper. And our theme music is You Need a Visa by Really From. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join me next Thursday for another episode featuring another teacher and another story.